Hello, and welcome to The Powers That Be, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. Welcome. First, I'll be talking to Matt Bellany about the CW, the network, not the conventional wisdom, and an only in Hollywood story about actor Daniel Kaluuya that you have to hear. After that, we'll be joined by Teddy Schleifer to talk about the rich Silicon Valley Democrats putting pressure on the Biden administration over voting rights and whether moderates like Kirsten Sinema should be worried about these big donors. These are the great sort of conversations you can only have with expert insider reporters who really know what's going on. I hope that you enjoy the powers that be. Welcome, everybody, to the powers that be. Uh, this is your host, Peter Hamby. Uh, thanks to Teddy Schleifer for filling in last week when my girlfriend and I took our dog for the first time up to Lake Tahoe so he could experience the snow. Oh, I, I thought you were on a party bus somewhere. I was telling everyone that. Oh, yeah? That's what you assume I'm doing when I'm not present? I figure you, you <laughs> leave after this podcast and you get on a party bus and you travel around for a week and then you come back. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. That explains why I'm so tired all the time. <laughs> but I'm glad you have that image of me as a loush LA party boy in your head. That voice, in case you didn't recognize it, which I know is impossible, is Matt Bellany, our man in Hollywood. Matt, you have a piece up this week on Puck about the CW, not the conventional wisdom, which is what I think of as a Washington dork when I hear the word CW, but CW, the network, which is for sale. And just as a brief preamble, I don't really know what the CW is. I feel like it's you don't time. Well, no, I know what it is. I'm just saying, like, it was never a thing that I watched. I feel like it, you know, it was a little after my time in terms of a hub for teen dramas and soaps and all the things that made the CW famous. There's only five broadcast networks, and the CW is one of them. I assume you know what Fox and NBC and ABC are, correct? Yeah. But I don't know. It's just like I grew up with the watching Fox and CNN and NBC, but like CW. That's true. They don't have a news app. They don't. Right. They don't have a lot of things that the other networks have. But I didn't, not even news. Like I didn't I didn't watch the CW in high school. But I feel like if you're like slightly younger than me, you watch the CW in high school. Explain to people listening to the powers that be. Yes. What the CW is. <laughs> and is. What's different about it from the WB. <laughs> OK, so. The CW was created in 2006 by smashing together UPN, which was a broadcast network catering to urban audiences, and the WB, which was a broadcast network catering to young people. And they created this network owned by CBS and Warner Brothers together. And the whole point of it from the very beginning, it never made any money. The point of it was to be a venue for shows that appealed to the 18 to 34 demographic that you know so well. And that could be owned by those two owners, CBS and Warner Brothers. And what they did is they put their shows on the CW and then they sold them around the world in, you know, everywhere from Germany to Asia and everywhere else. And uh, eventually they sold them to streaming, made a whole bunch of money there. And the CW just kind of chugged along as the home of the DC Comics TV shows and you know, the Arrowverse and All-American and Batwoman, shows like that. What happened, though, like everything in this immediate ecosystem, is that it's moving to streaming. Young people are not watching The CW anymore. And the consolidation in streaming right now, these owners of broadcast networks are all promoting their own streaming service. So Warner Brothers, for instance, has HBO Max, which they are trying to turn into a Netflix killer. 
and CBS, which is owned by Viacom, they have Paramount Plus, which they are trying to turn into a streaming powerhouse. So when you have these streaming services that you're trying to fuel, it doesn't make sense to sell your shows off to Netflix or global distributors anymore. They makes it, it makes sense to put them on your own streaming service. And if you do that, then it doesn't make sense to have the CW anymore because the CW is only there to be a venue for shows that you can then sell elsewhere. That's what's going on, and that's why they are selling it. Okay, well, before getting to the streaming thing, and again, I don't want to diminish the CW. I'm just saying, like you said, it debuted in 2005 or six. Like I was not at home in middle school or high school watching Gilmore Girls, Seventh Heaven, One Tree Hill, Smallville, Veronica Mars. Like These were huge shows for... I feel like younger millennials, I just missed it, but they're huge shows. And like Riverdale is obviously a huge teen drama. Um, that's CW show, but their business model was to just create this programming and like syndicate it Yeah, in it. Brazil and yes. France. Own it throughout the world where they can make money elsewhere. And yeah, they made some money on the linear network too, but it was mostly there to service these other outlets. And when those other outlets went away because they're funneling everything to their own streaming service now, there's no reason to prop up this broadcast network. And it might be more valuable to someone else. The likely buyer here, according to all the reports, is a company called Nexstar, which owns a lot of affiliates around the country. They have a big business in political advertising, owning affiliates in swing states and places where you can make a lot of money on that. And you get carriage fees as well. These cable companies pay a fee to carry networks like the CW. So you can survive on that. And the the thing is, the programming on the CW is likely going to change significantly when it is sold. Because when you're not chasing the 18 to 34 demo anymore, you don't have to have shows like Batwoman and, you know, the Arrowverse and Riverdale. You can do news programming or you can buy reruns of older skewing shows or things like that. And I don't think that the shows that people associate with the CW are going to be on the CW anymore. And that's a big change. So, I mean, I don't think it's a stretch to say that most TV network and broadcast executives aren't masters of innovation and technology, but some media companies and and broadcast networks did develop streaming platforms some more recently than others. Why didn't the CW ever think about doing that five, 10 years ago? They do actually have a digital business that they, that they can, they have an ad driven one. They have some other stuff that they, that they are actually growing, but the money that was coming from Netflix for these reruns was so good that it fueled the entire party. You know, Netflix would pay hundreds of millions of dollars for rights to these shows. And if you're running these networks, it's like free money. Why develop your own platform when you can sell to Netflix and make, you know, make your entire budget for the year? So that was the short-term decision they made. Now, obviously, long-term, that wasn't the smartest decision because all they were doing was building up Netflix and building up the subscriber base for that platform. And we saw this. This is the same thing that happened with Yellowstone. We talked about that a little bit where Yellowstone was a big hit for Paramount Network. But the streaming rights went to Peacock because they were the highest bidder. And at the time, Viacom CBS was two separate companies and they didn't have a real viable streaming model. Now they do. And now they've got to sit there and watch on Paramount Plus as their hit show is on Peacock, a rival service. 
Same thing with the CW. They had all these CW shows that have an audience of young people. Those young people were watching them on Netflix. And Netflix was building up its business by paying for those reruns. Now, all of a sudden, they're like, wait a second, we have HBO Max, if you're Warner Brothers, and we have Paramount Plus, if you're Viacom. They want those shows to go to their own networks. And most of those DC shows, the the hits on the CW, are Warner Brothers shows, because DC is owned by Warner Brothers. So... You know, all of the Arrowverse and Riverdale and those shows that actually do numbers for the CW, those will likely migrate to HBO Max. So that means that you'll be spending a lot more time on HBO Max as a, as a Riverdale fan. You're a big Riverdale guy, right? I do nothing else but watch Riverdale. <laughs> no. uh, but, but, is it, but it is actually a big business because, you know, the younger viewers are actually on Netflix anyways. Like, what 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 thirty year old and under person do you know that watches linear TV at all? No, I mean I, I would maybe even age that up to forty at right. this point. Um, so yeah, you know, other than sports, right. but it, that's the thing is like these people go to the streaming services for scripted shows now, anyways. So it, now it's just going to be easier. They're not going to be CW reruns. They're just going to be digital native original shows. Gotcha. I want to ask you about another streaming platform. Uh, network, which is Showtime, because we just finished watching Yellow Jackets, loved it, watched it every Sunday night. They were sort of dropping the episodes like HBO every Sunday night. And, and for those who haven't seen it, I loved it. It's a great 90s nostalgia show. It flashes back between 1996 and today and follows a girls soccer team that crashes uh, in the woods when they're flying to a tournament. It turns into sort of Lord of the Flies. But for teenage girls, there's whiffs of cannibalism and lots of mystery that needs to be unraveled. And this was this is clearly a hit for Showtime. It's got a lot of I don't know what the hard numbers are in terms of viewers, but it's got a lot of buzz in the sort of, you know, elite media, et cetera. It has HBO buzz. You can say it. They have HBO buzz. Yeah, it has HBO buzz. It has HBO buzz. And it, it like people are talking about it on Vulture and different podcasts or whatever. Like it's it just has that uh, word of mouth appeal. And my question is though, Showtime has been around seemingly forever. They have these hits. Homeland, I feel like was their biggest breakout in terms of the serial drama uh, type show with the kind of dark anti-hero, Billions, Dexter, Ray Donovan, et cetera. But like, it feels like they used to be a rival for HBO, but it's kind of like, if you think about NC State, in college basketball, whenever NC State plays North Carolina, they're like, this is our rival, North Carolina. But North Carolina turns around and says, yeah, cool, little guy. Our rival over here is actually Duke. And like, it feels like HBO Max and Netflix are like the Duke in Carolina. And, and Showtime is like the NC State, like, runt brother over here. Like, what, where, do, where does Showtime, in other words, like, see itself? Are they like an HBO rival? Like, I don't, I just, I just can't figure out what they are. A lot to unpack there. First of all, they would love to be considered an HBO rival. They are not, as for the reasons that you have said, you know, they, for many years, have been owned by a company, Viacom, that just does not invest as much into the programming. They have not had the the history and the, you know, the success with awards that HBO does. The, the, the real question here is what is the future of Showtime? Because Showtime has existed in this linear TV ecosystem where the dirty secret was they actually like HBO. They liked HBO because people who subscribe 
to HBO on their linear service often would upgrade to Showtime or the cable bundlers would package them together where you pay 15 bucks and you get both or things like that. So there was this weird symbiotic relationship between HBO and Showtime. Cut to the current world where everything is its own standalone service now that you subscribe to and unsubscribe to at your whim. And Showtime just really isn't as competitive as it once was. I mean, it's sort of become outside of billions and you can cite, you know, one-off shows that do okay. They're really not in the game. And Yellow Jackets was really the first time in a while that they had that kind of, um, you know, HBO style elitist off the entertainment page into the zeitgeist buzz that the others have. And there's a real question as to whether Showtime will exist as a standalone service in two, three, four years. Because remember, Viacom has Paramount Plus. They have another streaming service that is also doing premium scripted original TV. And their executive structure at Viacom is such that they have, you know, people that are over all of it to decide where the programming goes. But their priority right now is growing Paramount Plus as a all-purpose scripted streamer. I, I think they should merge. Uh, I think Showtime and Paramount Plus should be one service. I know the reasons why they don't do that, specifically because there is uh, you know tens of millions of dollars in revenue that is still associated with the Showtime brand from linear television. And if you get rid of that brand or you put it on Paramount Plus, you, you threaten that, that revenue. But ultimately, each of these media companies is going to have their own singular streaming service, in my opinion. And Paramount Plus looks like the Viacom version of that. That's interesting because uh, I was listening to the Prestige TV podcast on The Ringer after Yellow Jackets had their season finale. And Bill Simmons and Joanna Robinson were sort of talking shit about Showtime a little bit and basically saying when they have a breakout hit like Homeland or Billions, they just kind of uh, glom onto the the hit and like ride the series into the ground by extending it four, five, six seasons, probably beyond its shelf life, probably bring it back. You they know. just did a Dexter reboot. Right. And so, you know, but in your telling, like it might, <laughs> Showtime might not even exist. So Yellow Jackets, you know, might not even go past two or three seasons. I don't think Maybe. it should. I don't, I don't know that it won't exist. I, I know there are a lot of analysts and insiders in the industry that believe Showtime should be merged in. And obviously Showtime's not the only outlet that is doing reboots. You could look to the Sex and the City reboot and a bunch of others elsewhere. But it does feel like the streaming wars have passed Showtime by and they are no longer in that same conversation with HBO, which is in the Netflix, Disney, Hulu conversation. Showtime is in that second tier. And these days, if you are in the second tier in the streaming world, you are ripe for the picking. You you will either merge or you will be bought out or you will cease to exist at some point. Yeah, I mean, this is this is embarrassing for me to say, but I've, I've signed up for Showtime two or three times over the last seven years just to watch a show and then cancel my subscription. And that, that might be a waste of money or whatever. But I also don't know a lot of people who have Showtime subscriptions, so it's not like I can like borrow their password, um, whereas everybody seems to have an HBO or Hulu or Netflix password. My dad loves Showtime. He watches all sorts of stuff on there, and I, I don't, I don't know. If, uh, I'm like, Dad, HBO is better. Like, you should watch, you should get HBO. But he, he has, and he has it on linear. So you know, that's 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 where the audience is. Well, again, I do think that when streaming 
really started to pop in that 2011 to 2013 era. Um, Showtime had Homeland. Homeland was a huge hit. And a lot of people signed up for Showtime and maybe still have it. You know, like old habits die hard in that sense. Like if you are a Homeland viewer, you probably still have Showtime. If you're of a certain age. I don't know. Maybe I'm making that up. Don't underestimate that linear ecosystem also. Because cable companies... They give it to you for free or they give it to you free for six months or whatever, you know, like that. That's the whole model. These they, these companies, they're essentially wholesalers of television. So they're selling to the cable companies, which then sell it to you. And now in a direct to consumer world where Showtime has to sell you, Peter, the subscriber on why this is a value to you. It's a much different equation. The last thing I want to ask you before we talk to Teddy about why rich Democrats are angry at Joe Biden, um, <laughs> which is a very different topic. Uh, I want to ask you about a, a, a little item you had a few days ago about Oscar winner Daniel Kaluuya, who most people know from Get Out, uh, but he won Best Supporting Actor for playing Fred Hampton in Judas and the Black Messiah, celebrated actor. Um, but he's got a strange management situation. This feels like an only in Hollywood story, which is why... We're so lucky to have you at Puck, but tell us what's going on. This is a crazy one. So Daniel Kaluuya has this woman in his life whose name is Air Holiness, like H-E-I-R, Holiness. And uh, I encourage you to Google her LinkedIn. It's quite a ride. She is a spiritual advisor and a guru and was the headmistress at something called Blessed University. Um, at least that's according to her LinkedIn And she has become close with Daniel Kaluuya and was on the set of the recent production of the next Jordan Peele movie, which is called Nope, which stars Daniel Kaluuya. And Jordan Peele directed Get Out. So uh, this is a reuniting of those two. Caused some problems on the set. There were issues. People were sort of like, who is this woman? And why is she telling me what to do? That kind of thing. And, you know, I, I I don't want to pass judgment. There's a lot of interesting people that float in and out of Hollywood, but I, I do encourage you to look to Google this person, and it is it seems to be an example of someone um, who has kind of uh, wiggled their way into the life of a uh, a major star, and uh, we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, I I just went on LinkedIn.com backslash Air Holiness. Her interests include. Tony Robbins and Deepak Chopra, which makes a lot of sense. And then Richard Branson. Uh, looks like she changed her job title, though, to chief operating officer. She, uh, maybe she changed it after she read your piece. Who knows? <laughs> anyway. At least it's not Scientology. Y- yeah. But that's that feels like a, a, a sibling of, of this feels like a, a close relative of Scientology the more I'm Googling it. And. As we're talking, I'm finding myself in a Google rabbit hole. Anyway, listeners of the powers that be, uh, if you're if you're feeling holy, um, Google air holiness and, and you can dig into this Daniel Kaluuya saga. Apparently, she also goes by Princess Holiness as well. So uh, Princess Holiness. OK, cool. I will Google that, too. All right, Matt. Have a good weekend, man. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, I talked to Teddy Schleifer about voting rights, Kirsten Cinema, Joe Manchin and some of Silicon Valley's most powerful liberal donors. Stay tuned. 
Thanks again for listening to The Powers That Be and for supporting Puck, our new company focused on the inside conversation, the plot that only insiders know, the real story at the nexus of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. Puck's content is A+. Our scoops and analysis will help you understand the most important stuff happening around us today. And when you subscribe to Puck, you're supporting our great team, empowering us to do the work that really matters, to grow our business, and importantly, to pave a path for a new media model. So check us out at www.puck.news. Welcome back to The Powers That Be. Joining me now is Teddy Schleifer, who is now my backup host, I guess. How'd it Correct. go last week hosting the pod? Uh, good. You know, I, uh, I made some friends, made some <laughs> enemies. And, you know, lo and behold, you are back. So it couldn't have been too good a fill-in. Well, I did just impress Matt Bellany with my knowledge of CW teen dramas. Speaking of drama... You had some ace reporting this week um, on Puck.News about um, your specialty, rich Democrats, many of them out here on the best coast, uh, who have really spent the last few months putting some serious pressure on Democratic leadership, including White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, Senate Majority Leader Charles Chuck Schumer, um, over... Uh, voting rights and uh, the Biden administration's efforts to pass voting rights legislation that would protect American voters, especially in red states like Arizona, Texas, Georgia, and several others where they are trying to curtail not just access to voting, uh, but uh, even the rules of how <laughs> electors get uh, chosen and presidents get chosen from there. Um, but Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, um, the two most famous moderates in the Senate at this point. They both balked at um, blowing up the filibuster to pass this because there aren't enough votes to do so. But anyway, we all know the process in Washington, but what's what's the outside in game here? What are what are what kind of pressure are donors putting on the administration to do something to protect voting rights nationally? And is that fight just over right now? By the time people are listening to this, uh, this will be probably dead in the coffin officially, though, even at the time of recording, I think it's pretty much been there for a week. You're right. It's been an outside in game. To some extent, one of the underappreciated dynamics in the Democratic Party right now is that the donors in some ways are to the left of elected officials. Like oftentimes there's sort of this caricature that's painted uh, of rich people that they're all sort of in this you know, they're all moderates, right? They're all at Davos, center left, center right, all just looking out for their business's bottom line. In reality, lots of donors are reading the same stuff that uh, that we are and are just as hyper online and Twitter obsessed as the rest of us schmucks. <laughs> so in the Democratic Party especially, I, I think lots of donors are, have more in common ideologically with the activists pushing, you know, Schumer to cancel student debt or, you know, they should do a three point five trillion dollar build back better program, not the narrower one. And on voting rights, the strategy has been we need to go for this it needs to be a higher priority than virtually anything. And so it's been an outside in strategy. So for the last I would say for the last year, really. Democratic donors and sort of affiliated groups, whether it's Emily's List or new organizations like Voices for Progress or even the Democracy Alliance, have been pushing the White House specifically and, and Chuck Schumer 
to prioritize this and to whip Joe Manchin and Curse of Cinema kind of by any means necessary. And they've been often unsatisfied with how quickly they have moved. So on, on voting rights specifically, what we've seen is, you know, a pretty much a, a, a standard furious pressure campaign to get not only the White House to move this up the docket. I mean, there's some activists who wanted Democrats to tackle voting rights and, you know, admit Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico as states, you know, the very first thing they did in D.C., even before COVID relief. That was like some some people thought that. But obviously, they're only turning to it now, a year in the administration. And point two is not only prioritize it, but go to the mattresses, um, which lots of activists and mega donors feel the White House did not do. Um, they felt they played footsie with with Joe Manchin, letting him write his own bill, and you know not really pressuring him on the filibuster reform. And this has very much been a Silicon Valley phenomenon. Specifically, I want to talk about two people. There's so there's one person may, people may have heard of, and one person they may not have. The person you may have heard of is, is Ron Conway, who is sort of like the local mocker out here in San Francisco politics. You know, he was sort of seen as almost like a shadow mayor of San Francisco in the early 2010s. He's older. He's probably in his late 60s. And he's very close with Nancy Pelosi in particular. So Conway is just like a ruthless, you know, sort of like an action figure hero, like I can save the day sort of guy. And Conway is very close with Ron Klain. So what we reported at Puck is Conway has really been, you know, applying some some uh, some pressure on Klain, his longtime friend, in October Conway organized a private letter that he sent to Klain, signed by basically the who's who of Silicon Valley royalty, Eric Schmidt, a bunch of big names. And I think the, the key quote was, like, we can't build back better if democracy is crumbling or something like that. And then, you know, up until this last weekend, I know Conway has been working the phones, you know, trying to get through to mansion, cinema, people like that. That's the name people have heard of. The name you haven't heard of, unless you read our story in Puck in September about this person, is Carla Jurvetson. You know, if Conway's been doing this for a decade, Carla is uh, a new kid on the block. She's definitely one of these kind of post-Trump energized donors, does not someone who was active in politics before. And Jurvetson, probably, I would say, honestly, even more than Conway, has been pushing Schumer and Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, who, who Jurvetson spent big money to help elect Kirsten Cinema in 2018. Now, she's pretty pissed off, and, and understandably so, like... Uh, you know, I reported earlier this fall that Cinema and Jorvetson have had several tense phone calls where they're not at each other's throat, but it's clear that that relationship is frayed. So I think that what we're seeing now, you might be asking yourselves, why did Democrats go on this sort of foolish, preordained mission that pretty, you know, I think even only so, so smart people like like us two can figure out was never really going to succeed. <laughs> uh, I think the donor pressure was a big part of it, um, or at least a part of it. Uh, and that's behind the scenes. And that's sort of, uh, you know, to, to sell puck for a minute. I mean, that's that's we're trying to understand kind of the hidden forces at play. And that was one of them. No, no. And to your credit, I, like several reporters who cover Washington messaged me and I should have slacked you this. Sorry, I'm bad at slack uh, that they were, you know, great piece, which in reporter speak means, damn, I'm kind of jealous. I didn't get that. Um, so good job, amigo. But yeah, Carla first came to my attention in 2019 because she, I think she plowed like 14, $15 million into Elizabeth Warren's Correct. super PAC uh, when she ran for president. And I'm sure Ron Conway and, and Carla are aligned on, on voting rights, but the distinction between these two seems to reflect what I see as a larger divide on the left in the democratic party, which is 
on one side, you have your sort of resistancey, very online Twitter, MSNBC host activist left that is screaming from the mountaintops that we need to do more to save our democracy, that right. um, the coup attempt of January 6th is just the beginning, that Republicans in states uh, marshaled by Donald Trump, the Pied Piper, are trying to overturn elections and, and planning to overturn the 2024 election. And they are, what you said, like a lot of donors, kind of pie-in-the-sky idealists. And then it sounds like Conway reflects more of the, I've been around the block, I know how DC works, I'm friends with Nancy Pelosi, right. the sort of strategist, cynical journalist, been uh, elected official side of things, which is like, we believe in these things, <laughs> but it's really hard to get these things done. Is that, are, are, so in other words, are there two different camps in this sure blob of donors yeah i mean i think i think it's important to note that i mean even the uh even the wizen strategist you know failed just as much as the you know uh new new uh big-hearted idealist right i mean um they're all ended up in the same place um which i guess to some extent reflects it doesn't really matter to some extent whether or not a donor is what the reasoning is it really comes down to you know the art of the possible, right? And and this was not possible um, unless you had uh, Joe Manchin, you know, compromat. Um, you were you were not going <laughs> to succeed here. Um, but yes, there is there is look there there is a class of people like John Doerr, I think would be another good example. Uh, sort of the old guard of Silicon Valley, just by virtue of the fact that they are the old guard, um, they understand how politics works, and they are. Have relationships, you know. They're not. They're not. They didn't. They didn't donate fifteen million dollars to Elizabeth Warren last week. They've donated fifteen million dollars a year to, you know, uh, burnt not Bernie Sanders, but choose your kind of uh, old fogey in, in D.C. for the last two decades, and that's kind of Group One. And yes, you're correct. Carla kind of I think is um, an example of, of Group Two, which are people who showed up didn't necessarily know how politics was quote unquote supposed to be played. But to explain the, the second side for for a minute, look, I mean, who the fuck knows how politics is supposed to be played? I mean, like to, to some extent, <laughs> yeah. I, I think I think the most successful Silicon Valley entrepreneur in politics the last couple of years has been Sean Parker, who uh, you know Justin Timberlake from The Social Network, uh, founder of Napster, early uh, Zuckerberg confidant. Sean Parker basically forced through. Uh, opportunity zones as part of the 2018 tax bill, which I think Parker spent like 15 or 20 million bucks. And I mean, basically single-handedly pushed through like a significant piece of tax policy. And like, that's pretty good return on your investment. Now it's like Sean doing, you know, going to doing this for 25 years, like not really. So uh, the rules are are meant to be rewritten um, and I wouldn't count out Carla in the future. So just to get into the drama here you reported that last week about 200 democratic progressive donors joined a quote strategy call with chuck schumer to pressure him on the filibuster to pressure him on on voting reform and you and i both been in rooms with politicians when they talk to donors and we've heard leaked audio I've been on a few donor calls before, just on mute, sort of <laughs> yeah. like a reporter would. Been and, there too. You know, it frequently they just really don't say much in those moments. 
different from they do in public. Uh, you know, they off the record over especially, especially especially now. Yeah, because you can just leak. You can record and leak these things. Politicians are guarded on these giant conference calls. But was anything of note said in this call? You know, what did the donors say to to Leader Schumer? And did he say anything of note to them about any roadmap for getting this stuff done? No. And look, I mean, I think I think Schumer is going to actually come out of this in donors' eyes looking pretty good. I mean, he's basically forcing Democrats to walk the plank, at least as of this recording. And and Schumer didn't say much new. I mean, he basically, my understanding is he gave him a preview of, of you know, the quote-unquote strategy um, that was going to unfold over, over the next couple of days, which was, we're going to do a vote. And uh, Schumer is ultimately, you know, not really the problem. Though, though I do think that the fact that you're doing these calls with these donors the night of sort of uh, proves the, the thesis of the story, which is th- these donors on this particular effort were both an asset and a liability. And, and they were an asset because, you know, you can get Ron Conway to get, you know, not only did they send that letter to, to Ron Klain, they did a call with Klain where Conway, you know, used his kind of trademark bravado and, and charm to try to will this into existence. So that's the asset. But they're also a liability because now you have all these like pissed off, angry people who you don't have to only channel the anger, you have to manage the anger, right? And and since I wrote this, you know, Emily's List, I mentioned a moment ago, they've put out a statement saying they're not going to support cinema going forward. Over the weekend, I reported that other groups such as Voices for Progress, the Democracy Alliance, and way to win, sort of all these kind of donor collaboratives are also saying they are no longer supporting cinema and mansion, and they would encourage their members to do the same in their individual giving. Um, so that's a, that's a problem. Like, I mean, that's, I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe Joe Manchin probably doesn't give give a flying fuck about a primary challenge from the left in West Virginia, but Kirsten Cinema might. Um, and and they, these donors um, have power, and they can be a political problem for the Democratic caucus uh, just as often or increasingly it feels like more often than they are an asset. Yeah, no, uh, for people listening, there's a there's a term that people in politics, uh, especially staffers, use to talk about donors and massaging the relationship with them, which is called donor maintenance. And this sounds like <laughs> who gets seated, who gets seated at the table and, you know. Uh, a fun part of WikiLeaks um, for people who are bored is just like looking at like the the way that uh, Democrats like in Podesta would talk about donors and you, there are these memos where they have inordinate amounts of detail on like their son is interning at HUD this summer. Make sure to mention blah blah blah, and it's a it's a, uh, it's a fun window into the ego of this world. Yeah, uh, well, the, the, what you said about Mansion and Cinema gets me to the, to the final thing I want to ask you about this, which is, as you wrote, uh, Emily's List, NARAL, uh, Democracy Alliance said they wouldn't support candidates who don't, you know, try to get rid of archaic rules in favor of democracy, clearly aimed at, at Mansion and Cinema. To your point, it doesn't sound like Mansion really cares what these you know, rich progressive donors from Silicon Valley think or what these interest groups in Washington think, because one, a lot of his biggest donors are energy companies who have business in West Virginia. Sure. But Cinema does, she's almost certain to draw a primary from the left at this point. Yep. And it seems like she would care about her money pipeline being uh, chopped off. Yeah. I mean, is, 
like it's and I'm asking you I'm asking you this question because she is such an enigma. She does such little press. Even a lot of reporters who cover her don't know much about her or what she's thinking at any given moment. So like is she do you have any sense that she's worried that her dollars are going to dry up and that she will cave to kind of donor pressure or is she just totally going her own way? I mean, look, she she is not someone who has a uh, national donor base of, of you know low dollar givers, right? This is not AOC here. Um, she was elected in eighteen, you know, in a tight race. I think she definitely should be concerned to some extent. I mean, Emily's list spent I don't have the number in front of me a lot of money on her behalf. This is not like irrelevant, you know, angry letters to the editor here. This is like people who could make the difference between. You know, whether she gets a primary challenger like Ruben Gallego, who's a congressman who's been increasingly talking about running against cinema, but also, I mean, Arizona is a, a purple state, right? I mean, if you have a donor, not even just in the primary, but in a general who's going to sit it out, who knows? I mean, we're, we're, I mean look, I guess the, 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 the bearish case here for this being a real controversy would be the Arizona Senate election is in 2024, not 2022. I think if cinema was up next year, this would be a much more live ball in terms of pressure. 2024, like other people, who knows if people even remember this. But clearly, this this is not irrelevant for her uh, in the way that it's irrelevant for for Joe Manchin. And like, there are some Democrats I talk with who definitely think that you know they're glad Joe Manchin is in the caucus. Right? He is the only senator who could win, only Democrat who could win a statewide office in West Virginia. That is not the feeling of Democrats about cinema. You know, she is not this this special snowflake, and maybe. She'll, we'll, we'll, we'll test that uh, in 36 months when this actually uh, plays out. Yeah, I mean, Democrats, there are polls showing that Democrats in Arizona are asking for a primary challenge, but it's it's still sort of unclear. As you said, this election is, is in 2024, not November. But even statewide, I mean, it's sort of 50-50 or 40-40, <laughs> you know, in terms of cinema's popularity there. Um Certainly, she's unpopular on the left, but she's still trying to maintain this sort of middle of the road posture that hasn't so far tanked her favorability in Arizona. But, um, you know, there's a long way to go. And and it's certain, you know, voters might not remember all of this process stuff from Build Back Better, from voting reform, but someone at Emily's list has made a note. Sure. Put, <laughs> that, out a, put out a statement. And, and, and to some extent, you just need, you just need you know, Carl Jefferson's on the board of Emily's List, which is key context here, uh, and I think has given about $75, $80 million to Emily's List over the last five years. It's I think it's more than half the money they've taken in. So it's a lot. It doesn't really matter whether or not voters remember it. I mean, sort of the, the point of, of Donorville is you can just piss off one person and only one person needs to really care for uh, you know a war chest to dry up. Yes. Uh, and, and just to punctuate all of this, the, the final line of your piece hints at the idea that Democrats in Washington, maybe Biden will support this, a kind of tailored bill that would focus more narrowly on the Electoral College and protecting that, you know, rather than creating a national framework that would overrule state legislatures and judges, uh, you know, and sort of nationalize elections, or at least as Republicans say it. And, you know, that that. That is something that the Mitch McConnell and John Thunes of the world in the, in the Republican caucus in the Senate have sort of, you know, winked at that that might be something they would support, too. So this, you know, protecting the results of the 2024 presidential election doesn't isn't totally dead, even if this voting reform bill 
might be. All right, Teddy, have a good weekend, man. Thank you for talking. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Eric Johnson of lightningpod.fm, our partner, for his support. And thanks, too, to Liz Goff and Ben Landy for their production help. I'm Peter Hamby, and I will see you next week.